0: Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 as we read verses 26 through 35. Hear now the word of God. In the sixth month, sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you grant your Holy Spirit to us today so that we can hear your word clearly, that it would not be obscured by any error, any human teaching that obscures or ignores your word. Help us to have your, have our own view of humanity raised up, not because we are great, but because you are great and because you have spoken and told us what we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. What I often do is I write the sermon and then I write the introduction. And after I wrote today's sermon, I decided I should lead off by asking your forgiveness. Because we just read one of the sweetest, most memorable, most, if I can make up a word, because I do that sometimes in the pulpit, Christmassy, we read one of the most Christmassy passages in the Bible, and yet I'm about to bring something up that seems about as unchristmassy as you could possibly imagine. And the reason I'm going to do that is because we as human beings, living in the western world have a problem and we have a dilemma really and if i could give away the ending i think christmas helps us solve that dilemma at least if we're willing to hear what it has to preach to us if we hear what it has to say to us and here is the dilemma we are in the midst of a genuine crisis over what it means to be human in the west and over what it means to be a person And as it becomes less and less plausible to people that we were made by a creator and that we were made in that creator's image, we find that Westerners also increasingly struggle to believe that we as human beings are really special at all. And to to show you this problem, which I think Christmas helps us to answer, I need to turn to a rather unfestive topic. Artificial intelligence. You didn't know I was going there, did you? I told you this wasn't going to feel right, at least not at first, but bear with me. I was recently reading the new biography of Elon Musk by Walter Isaacson. And in this book, Walter Isaacson recounts this conversation that took place over dinner between Elon Musk, and I'm not going to tell you who that is because you probably know who that is, and Larry Page and Larry Page is one of the co-founders of Google, and so Musk and Larry Page are having this conversation about the future of artificial intelligence. And in the conversation, the the two men come to an absolute disagreement. And if I could oversimplify the conversation just a little bit, uh, after being challenged by Musk, that Google, in, in Musk's opinion, Google was trying to create a digital god. That would know and control all this is a very con- concerning to Musk that this is happening. And so Larry Page, the Google co-founder, said that if a rogue artificial intelligence came to dominate humanity and even ended up eradicating human human life, what was the real problem? As long as there is some intelligence and consciousness out there in the cosmos, So he says, what if humanity gets wiped out and all that's left is the Google computer? What's the big problem with that? (laughs) Which sounds like something a sociopath would say. Um, Whether it's a computer or a human being, why does it matter? Uh, Page wanted to know that. And so, you know, in the mind of one of the biggest tech companies in the Western world, human beings are nothing special. We're just another consciousness in the universe. We just happen to be made of meat. And in Isaacson's telling of the conversation, Musk was was dumbfounded. His response was that he wanted any work on artificial intelligence to include safeguards, built-in laws to keep the AI from eventually turning on humanity. Whether you think that's going to happen or not is not part of this sermon. (laughs) Musk basically said, well, call me old-fashioned, but I'm biased toward human beings. I like human beings. That was his response. But here was the thing that fascinated me. He couldn't give a reason why human beings should have priority, except that he was an old-fashioned guy with certain preferences for human beings. And so, Page responded to Musk. He says, you're just a speciesist. You just have a preference for human beings. You prefer human consciousness over other forms of consciousness. And so, for the Google co-founder, this company that was once supposed to not do evil right that was their rule don't be evil what does it matter if consciousness is biological or if it's digital as long as there's something self-aware out there in the universe floating around looking at stuff who cares if it's happening through gray matter or silicon and this is a this is a common theme in science fiction if you've If you're as much of a nerd as me, and you already know I'm a nerd because I just just spent the last five minutes talking about this. The idea that all consciousness is created equal is a part of science fiction. It's a very common theme in science fiction. Many science fiction stories have sort of embraced this theme that, that a robotic or a digital mind is just as valuable, just as important, just as much of a person as human beings. In other words, the idea that human beings are not really special. This view that other forms of consciousness might be equally valid. And this isn't just tech companies. Um, People sometimes believe and think this way about animals, for example. Why on earth am I bringing this up in a sermon? What a weird way to lead off the Advent season, right? And and a sermon, yeah, right, during during Advent, right? Here's what I want us to see as we look at today's text. We live in a moment where some people, even at the level of of entertainment and technology, no longer take it for granted that human beings have a special status in the world or a special status in the universe. Instead, many assume that we all are that all we are as human beings, when it really comes right down to it, is just another form of consciousness. And so. Part of the reason I'm bringing this up is because many just sort of assume what Larry Page assumes that we as human beings are really just conscious pieces of meat. And someone like that needs to be confronted with the truth and needs to be corrected, of course. But there's another group that needs corrected. And, and this is because there are others who, like Musk, believe that there is something special about human beings. And I, I take it for granted that most people are in this category. They believe that human beings are special. There's something important about human beings. And yet, if I could use Elon as an example, he's somebody who is not a believer in God, who normally in most interviews identifies as some form of atheist or agnostic. And so they could not tell us why human beings are special, why human beings are unique, why human beings are important. And I would suggest that in the Western world, as church attendance drops off, as religious interest drops off, that increasingly that is the majority of people in the West. They have an intuition. They have a sense that there is something about human beings that is worth preserving and that's different from all other forms of life and consciousness. So many modern people believe in human rights, but they do not have a reason to believe in human rights and they couldn't explain why. There are many uh, in our time, and this has been the case for probably the last 60-plus years. Um, Think about the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. It was written in 1948. In that Declaration of Human Rights, it declares that there is something about the human being that is different from other creatures, that is worthy of caring for. Human beings have a dignity and a type of rights that, say, animals, for example, don't have. At the same time, the Declaration gives no grounding for why human beings are important or why there is a such thing as human rights. People may, and I think they mostly do, still believe these things, but they increasingly do not know why. I know that it's wrong to enslave another person. I just couldn't tell you why it's wrong for someone else to enslave a person. I know it's wrong to kill an innocent person. I just couldn't give you the reason why it's wrong to kill an innocent person. And then as the explicit biblical vision of humanity that we sort of inherited as Westerners, as it is sort of eclipsed by a modern approach that still wants to believe in human rights, but sees no design, sees no purpose, sees no meaning. And as we decide that we somehow have the right to declare our own identities and our own meaning, And our own purpose, we unknowingly are sawing off the branch on which we stand. Modern people, and when I say that, it's pressing on us too. It's not just those out there. It's pressing on us too. Currently are moving toward thinking of themselves as God, and yet they also want to also have at the same time a belief that people are important and valuable and have rights. And those things can't both be true. Some holdouts still declare the importance of human beings, but they are unequipped to explain why. Even if they couldn't explain it, they know, they still assert somehow, human beings are special and important. But like Musk says, without a creator God, that belief ends up just being a preference rather than a truth. And people will have to say, call me old-fashioned, but this is my preference, that human beings have rights. But without a reason, it's just a preference. We are the church. We can help with this because part of our purpose is to serve as a testimony to the world around us. So the, the world is right that human beings matter, but the world is also confused. God has given us his word to hold out to that world. And that word helps make sense of the world's intuition that human beings matter. They're right about that. But it corrects the way that the world is cutting off the branch that it is sitting on right now. We can help. We can orient the world to the truth. That is part of our calling. And today's scripture passage, whether you realize it or not, is a profoundly important passage that speaks to us. Not just of a historical event, which the incarnation of Christ is. It's a historical event It took place in time and space, but those events in time and space mean something. And the incarnation of Jesus specifically speaks about something every human being that is true of every human being on this planet. What we're actually looking at here is one of the reasons why human beings are valuable and we are not just conscious pieces of meat. The incarnation of Jesus speaks to who we are as human beings in several significant ways. And so in the time that we have, I want to show you what that is. First, the incarnation tells us that mankind is precious. Second, the incarnation of Jesus tells us that mankind is made to worship. And then third, the incarnation tells us that mankind is made for glory. I want you to see this morning... That the incarnation of Jesus is not just a slogan that is meant to be pulled out in the month of December. It is something that teaches us about ourselves. Because Jesus became one of us. Jesus is the perfect man. He is the full man. He is the complete man. And so his incarnation tells us not just what he is like. It tells us what we are like. This is something the world knows deep down, but they need to be reminded of it and they need to be given a grounding for what they believe. And so first this morning, I want us to see that the incarnation teaches us that mankind is precious. Um, Let me show you what I mean. If you look at verse 28, the angel Gabriel comes to this little backwater town, Nazareth, and he speaks to this young woman named Mary. And just notice the way that he greets her. He says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. All right. So the angel tells Mary something about herself. First of all, that she's favored. And second, he tells her that God's presence is with her. Um, you know, we're so used to this story, perhaps, that we take it all for granted. Of course, he appears to Mary. Of course, he shows up in Nazareth. Of course, of course. You know, we do this every year when we hear it, but stop, you know, try to read this passage like its content is not a given. Read this passage with the kind of surprise of a young woman who has never known a man and just heard something completely impossible. And and so as we look at this with fresh eyes, um, guess what we learn, not just about Mary, but about all of us, Um. This is going to sound crazy. There are five sub points. So if you're taking notes, leave room for five, five sub points. <laughs> it was, it was four. And then this morning it got another one. So, uh, first, first this, the incarnation teaches us that human beings are valuable because we are made in God's image. I know this is fundamental in scripture, but it has to be said, um, We see this in Genesis, right? God creates human beings and he says, let us make man in a mankind in our image. And this being made in the image of God governs our whole understanding of humanity. And it never lets up throughout all of scripture. It is there all over the Bible. The image of God is the thing that distinguishes us from animals. And if I might add, and computers and even from angels. All right, what does it mean that we're made in God's image? Uh, if you really want to know, read Herman Bavinck's Reformed Dogmatics. There are 50 great pages on this subject. Let me be simple, though. I won't read Herman Bavinck to you this morning. To begin with, it means that we resemble God in some way. Right, we are like God in a way that angels and animals and computers are not like God. It means that we walk the earth as God's representatives, as God's regents. It's why Adam and Eve are given all of these responsibilities to to care for the garden, because it's God's garden. It's God's earth. It's God's planet. And because they lived and labored in God's stead, they were meant to be his representatives. And what that did is it dignified their work in the garden. And remember, this is work they're doing prior to the fall. Even as God's image bearers, they are there as God's representatives. Scripturally speaking, the image of God is not something we have. Instead, it is something that we are. It's something that we are made in. It's not something that is granted to us, but it is ours in our very composition. And that image means that all human beings are God's offspring who in our entire existence and life and activity exhibit the image and likeness of that Creator in a way that no other being in all of the universe shows forth. No one else, nothing else in all of Scripture is spoken of as having the image of God. And the image of God extends to the whole person. All creatures are precious because of the Creator who made them, but only human beings. In body and in soul, in our thoughts and in our powers, in our conditions and our relations truly display the image of God. Jesus in his incarnation then enters into the same condition and bears the image of God himself even as a person who is fully God. Jesus in the incarnation fully exemplifies the value of human beings because he shows us what it looks like to live out the image of God in the trenches of real everyday life. We never have to wonder what it looks like to bear the image of God because Jesus lived it out for us. Jesus lets us see what that looks like. In the incarnation, in other words, we are taught the value of human beings as made in the image of God because Jesus was willing to enter and bear that same image and live as one of us. If I could put it this way, Jesus dignifies all of us by becoming us. If I might give a really simple application, we live in an age where people seem to be willing to increasingly hurt and hate and tear others down and dehumanize their neighbors Ours is an age of, of objectification where people look at each other as things to be used, as obstacles to be removed, and not as people made in the image of God. How can Christians of all people drag down other human beings or do things that dehumanize other human beings when we are looking into the face of someone whose condition Jesus willingly entered into? We cannot dehumanize or devalue someone in whose own shoes Jesus willingly chose to walk. Second, we learn that human beings are valuable because we're physical. It's the second lesson of the incarnation, right? The incarnation teaches us that our bodies are not simply a part of us that's sort of added on, but that in conjunction with our souls make up our whole person. Jesus is born body and soul. Our bodies are part of us and will be part of us for all eternity. The world in the West is especially uh, increasingly forgetting that our humanity involves our physicality. Whether we are happy with our bodies or not, uh, our embodiment is important. Our embodiment defines us as people. We resist our bodies to our peril. The son of God in in his incarnation, think of this. He doesn't come as a spirit. He doesn't come as a phantom. Uh, There was an early heresy in the church called docetism. The docetists did not believe Jesus had a body. Instead, they thought Jesus was a phantom, a ghost. And yet we also know that Jesus touched people. We know that he was touched. We know that he touched things. We know that he made meals for people. We know that Jesus had a physical body in his incarnation Our bodies are a part of what it means to be a human being. To be human is to be embodied. I know this sounds so basic that I I hope you're not tempted to fall asleep at this. Because the Western world is not falling asleep at this part. Because this is the part where they've completely gone off the rails. Uh, I'm not... I'm not talking politics. I'm not talking about anything except for the fact that the people in the world around us are very, very confused right now. The incarnate son of God took on the limitations and definitions that come from having a physical body. Jesus' body was not a temporary tool. It truly became a part of his existence. It continues to be a part of his existence. Our Lord Jesus still has a body. Ours is an age. That is increasingly convinced that our bodies do not matter, that our bodies must not define us, that our bodies do not control who we are or how we should think about ourselves. We are increasingly told that it is acceptable to define ourselves in opposition to our bodies as though our bodies are some kind of cancerous growth or some kind of malformation. And what is happening is a generation that doesn't know what it means to be human. This is not something that makes me angry. It's something that makes me sad. And yet the son of God comes at Christmas to remind us this body is what makes you human. This body has been given to you. Having a body given to you and as a part of you is what it means to be human. To deny that is to desecrate your very humanity. Something that was made in God's image. See, the son of God is born into this world and he shows us that we all have a given nature that we don't get to choose and we don't get to have control over it. Instead, we live with it. We are we are you know, we are we don't have control over our bodies. We are either born tall or we're born short or we're born round or we're born thin. We're dark skinned or light skinned. We're male or we're female. We live in the bodies that we were given. They're granted to us. They're given to us by God. And the incarnation teaches us that Jesus was born with a body. We don't know if he was short or tall or round or thin, but we know that he had a body. And the body that he had was the body that he was and the body that he is. His body was not just a tool or an instrument, but it was him. It was him. So that when his body suffered, he suffered so that when, he, when his body bled, he bled. And this is why it is a tragedy for human beings to see their bodies as something that is malleable, something that is optional, something that is restricting or imprisoning that needs to be denied or transcended. Because when this happens, all manner of confusion and even desecration of human beings becomes the result Human beings are valuable because we are physical. The incarnation teaches us that. Jesus willingly enters into an embodied existence. Third, in the incarnation, we learn that human beings are valuable regardless of culture or economic or social status. I know that might sound very, I don't know, modern talky, but think about this God sends this angel. To speak to a woman who was really the lowest of the low from a cultural perspective. Think of Mary. Mary is a, socially speaking, she's nothing. She is a nobody. She's not married yet, so she doesn't have the real protections of a man in first century Israel. She is a woman, so she's already at the very low end of Israelite society. She is poor. She's a poor maiden. She's about to be the the wife of a carpenter. All right. I still don't see the cash rolling in in their future. Um, we know that when they went uh, to op- make offerings at the temple, that the offering they gave was the offering of a poor family, not a wealthy family. And people have always had this preference for the upper crust of society. We have this preference for the clean people, the financially well-off people, the people we feel that can really benefit us. And in James two, James pushes back on this tendency toward partiality that we so often think of showing. Uh, think of how James applies this truth here. Uh, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wears a gold ring and fine clothing comes into wearing wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also also comes in. What we learn in the incarnation is that even Jesus came as a poor man, born to poor parents. And by by him doing that, we learn that human beings are valuable regardless of cultural, economic, or social status. He intentionally comes at the lowest place of all, in the lowest society of all, to the lowest woman of all. Fourth, we learn that human beings are valuable regardless of where we live. Mary is living in Nazareth. In the first century, nobody cared about Nazareth. The nearest major city to Nazareth at this time was a two-hour walk to the northwest. It was a town with very few natural building materials. It was a rough climb to get there. It had soil that wasn't good for farming. And so it was this town that would never really become prosperous. It had no natural resources that the residents could turn into money. Right there's there aren't trees to chop down it's it's difficult to quarry this is just not a place where there's a lot of financial resources and and actually I as I was researching this one of the things I found out was that first century Naz- Nazareth was was really nothing um the ESV archaeology study bible listen to what it says it says uh, What we've been able to dig up in first century Nazareth Nazareth implies a small agricultural town, fairly typical of others found throughout the region, with nothing particularly distinctive about it. Um, Nazareth is not mentioned in any other first century documents that we have found except the Gospels. If it weren't for the Gospels, we wouldn't have anything from the first century that mentions Nazareth. Mary lived in a place that was forgotten by most And unimportant to all. And yet the most precious person ever born is born there. He lived in the backwoods little town. And so what we learn is that human beings are valuable in the sight of God regardless of where we live. Uh, We may live in a gigantic city that's brimming with influence like New York or London. We're valuable as human beings anyway. We may live in a rural setting like Nazareth. We're valuable as human beings anyway. There are very few ways we can put this truth in a few ways we can put this truth into practice one is simply remember believers who are in faraway places who are in forgotten places um places that have lost manufacturing and they're seeing an exodus of young people that's the town i grew up in when i was a kid i was sad because i lived in a town nobody wanted to live in people did not move to stafford kansas uh people moved out of stafford kansas Uh, And, you know, to watch the town around you sort of disappearing and fading is a sad thing to have happen. Um, We need to pray for believers who live in places where people are forgetting them. Um, People who may feel very hopeless because of where they live for one reason or another. We can pray for them. We can love them. We can ask God to protect us from any sense of superiority because we do live in a city. I think city dwellers can feel better than country dwellers. City dwellers can feel superior to those who don't live in the city. And yet we learn that human beings are valuable regardless of where they live. Fifth, I told you there's a lot of points to this fifth, first point. Some points have more points than others. This is the case here. Fifth, we learn from this passage that human, being regard, human beings, regardless of their stage of development, are valuable. The moment Mary conceives by the power of the Holy Spirit... The angel says that she is carrying a son who already has an identity and a name chosen by God. He is not even born yet, and he's precious. We may be incredibly small, maybe even still growing inside of our mother's womb, something that we celebrate every year at the incarnation. God says we are still valuable. He tells her the child is precious and not only from the moment he is born, but from the moment he is conceived, he is precious. His value transcends his being born. In other words, just like Mary is valuable, whether she is in Jerusalem or in the backwoods of Nazareth, babies are valuable to God, too, whether they're outside of the womb, breathing on their own or whether they are inside their mother, depending on her for all their life and nutrients. This is not politics. This is ethics and morality. This is good and evil. This is black and white. How that's put into practice is politics. Now, I realize when I point out something like this, that there is likely someone in my hearing who has been affected by the subject of abortion. I want to leave no confusion. There is forgiveness. There is peace for those who have made terrible choices in their life i am grateful that we can all bring our sins to the throne of grace we can all repent of our sins and we can find the peace that jesus gives our sins do not have to follow us through our life we can come to god we can confess what we've done and he will receive us and he will forgive us and if we do this god will wash us clean And he promises to treat us not only as if we never sinned, he will treat us better than that. He will treat us as if we have lived the good life that Jesus lived. That's the gospel message. Not just for those who have had abortions, but for those who have hated their neighbor. For those who have stolen. For those who have broken God's law in any number of ways. For those who have shown preferential treatment for the rich over the poor. There is peace For all who repent and turn to Jesus. That is not a cliche. It is not a cheesy one-liner. It is not something I am obligated to say in every sermon. It's because it's true. And it's because every person in this room has sinned. And it's because all of us have had to bring things to God that we have done wrong. And we all need it. But knowing that others may have done something God says is wrong. Should never make us shy to speak where God has spoken. Life is precious. This is a statement of moral truth. It has potential political implications depending on what one does with that information. But this is the case with every moral truth. It should not stop us from reading the scripture. It should not stop us from hearing God speak about such moral realities. All five of these arguments are part of the first overall truth that need to become part of our own hearts and souls so that the next time we're sitting at a table with someone who thinks that a giant robot could take over the universe and it's fine because human beings don't really matter, we at least could come back with something that is true, something that we know is real. Human beings are made in the image of God. Human beings are embodied. Human beings are important to God. They're important to our creator. We're not just like every other consciousness in the universe. But there's more that the incarnation teaches us that I want us to see. And the second thing is this. The incarnation teaches us that mankind is made to worship. Uh, Jesus enters into our condition the moment he is conceived and, and he, he, he becomes uh, one that lives among us once he is born. But we see the worshiping life of Jesus in scripture. We see the worship of Jesus all over the Bible. We see it in Jesus' worship of God. Uh, we see Jesus showing up uh, and showing us what a true human being is meant to do. What does he do? What does he model for us throughout his entire life? He models for us a life of worship to the Creator. Um, we see the worshiping life of Jesus in a few ways. One of the ways is this in the Gospels, we see Jesus attending corporate public worship. Jesus goes to corporate public worship. We have records of a number of occasions where Jesus enters the t- temple complex. So along with the other Jews of his day, the temple is meant to be a place for the worship of God and for prayer. In fact, Jesus at one point says that the day that day after day, he was in the temple. Jesus is in the temple. In other words, day after day is another way of saying constantly <clears throat> When he is in Jerusalem, the place he wants to be more than anywhere else is in the temple complex. He wants to be in the place where God is meant to be worshipped. And that's because Jesus worshipped God. Jesus worshipped God. He's showing us that human beings are made for that. He doesn't just worship God in the temple. He worships God in the synagogue. Uh, Remember, the synagogue in Jesus' day was the place where the Jews worshipped, especially those who are not In Jerusalem, most of Jesus's life, he is not in Jerusalem. He is, he's in Galilee. He's in the backwoods, uh, as we talked about. There were synagogues all over Israel and Jesus worshiped in them frequently. 41 times the gospels mention the synagogue. At least three times Matthew's gospel records him on different occasions going into various synagogues. He goes certainly to teach, but he also goes to pray and to sing and to hear the scriptures read. And certainly Jesus would have sat under the preaching of the word by other rabbis as well. Um, Jesus attended public worship. And if there, there was, think about this. If there was anyone in all of Israel who could have said, you know, really, it's about just me and God. All I need is my me time between me and God. If there was anybody in all of the human race who would have the right to say, really, it's just me and God. I don't really need church. It would be Jesus. Um, there is he is candidate number one for that. And yet Jesus desired to worship corporately with God's people. We are not better than Jesus. You are not better than Jesus. I am not better than Jesus. If Jesus needed to be gathered with god's people to sing to pray to have the scriptures read and explained to him then we need those things too jesus is modeling that for us he teaches us by his example that we need corporate worship jesus models that second and related to the first we see jesus singing praise to god you ever think very much about the singing life of jesus um I promise this, the quote on the front of the worship order. From a human perspective, it was coincidental. Um, uh, Samuel Rutherford, faith may dance because Christ sings. Um, That was not my plan. Uh, I had not, I don't think, written this sermon yet. Not only did Jesus sing each time he was in the synagogue, but we also have record at least once of him singing outside of the synagogue On the night Jesus is betrayed, at the time when he's getting ready for his own death, Matthew and Mark both record for us that Jesus and his disciples sang a psalm together. They sang a psalm. Jesus sang. Um, On the night in particular, he would have sang Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 as was traditional. Now, I don't want to stimulate your imaginations too much, but wouldn't it be lovely to hear the singing voice of our Lord, to hear him sing? Uh, to hear him using his human voice to the best of his human ability to praise his heavenly father, he must, whenever, we're, we're, about, we're about to have the musical showcase this afternoon and all of the, those who are going to be playing practice and they labor hard and, and they put a lot of effort into um, their musicianship. And they do that because it's important to them. Could you imagine the singing voice of a man who cares to the maximum that he worships his father well in the way that he sings? Jesus must have sung beautifully. And I have to believe that just as we will see him face to face one day, I would love to hear him sing. It is something we do not often think about Jesus's singing life. Has anyone ever written about the singing life of Jesus? But he did that. He worshipped God by singing. He was musical. He, he dignified human music and especially the human act of lifting up his voice in praise by walking among us. Third way that Jesus worships God. We see Jesus submitting to God and acknowledging the greatness of God over him as a man. Now, this is implied already in Jesus's attendance at the synagogue and in the singing life of Jesus and in the praying life of Jesus. But Jesus's own life of worship meant that as a man, he acknowledged the greatness of God over him. Uh, specifically in John fourteen twenty eight, he says, the father is greater than I. He is acknowledging that in his incarnation as a man and as a man has to recognize the greatness of the father over him and in his humanity. This doesn't mean that within the Trinity itself, one person is greater than another. But it does mean this. It does mean that in Jesus's incarnation, he lived under God the Father and in submission to him. Jesus's incarnation teaches us the superiority of God over man. It teaches us that we are not greater than God. The the incarnation does not imply that now we are equal to God. Instead, Jesus models for us our own call to submit to God. Fourth, we see Jesus submit himself to the word of God. We see this all over scripture. Um, One is just in the way Jesus talks to others. Think about this. When Jesus wants to show someone an error, he'll say, have you never read in scriptures? Um, It's sort of like when someone tells me that they've never seen Star Wars. I say, have you never seen Star Wars? Um, For me, (laughs) my whole childhood was only watching star wars and when i meet someone and i know some of you are in here uh and when i meet someone who says they've never seen star wars i say, have you never seen star wars jesus meets somebody who is off their rocker and his response is have you never read the scriptures because that is his life that's his food that's everything that matters to him Meaning, meaning that Jesus has read the scriptures for himself and Jesus submits himself to them. And, you know, other times Jesus settles, settles disputes by saying something like, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Um, he's constantly faulting people because they haven't really read the scriptures. They haven't read them deeply enough and they certainly don't remember what they say. Jesus expects his listeners to follow his lead in reading scripture and submitting to what God says through Moses and the prophets. It's one of the ways we see the, 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 see Jesus worshiping in his incarnate life by modeling for us the reality. If our own incarnate Lord worships God by submitting to the scriptures, I ask once again, are we better than him? Fifth, and we see Jesus praying we see Jesus praying which is itself a form of worship Um, I don't think I need to belabor this but sometimes we forget that prayer is worship we think of how Jesus taught us to pray Jesus tells us that we should pray our father in heaven hallowed be your name Jesus is a frequent prayer he prayed a lot he went away by himself to pray See, he did believe me in God But he didn't believe that him and God meant that he should never corporately worship, but he did go away and he would go away and he would go to pray. And in that sense, Jesus is setting an example for us. He showed us that a life of prayer is a life of worship and a life of worship is a life of prayer. Even as we're praying, what are we doing? We're proclaiming God's greatness. We're proclaiming our submission to him. We're proclaiming our need for him and therefore his greatness to answer our needs. And so we're giving him glory. We're giving him worship when we pray. And that's what Jesus did with his life as well. The incarnate life of Jesus is a life of rich worship. It's all over the gospels. And and I'm really just scratching the surface. It's why this sermon really could have easily gone longer than it already is. Why is all this important? Because as Jesus lives this worshipful life, he is showing us that worship is not something we do simply because we're fallen. It is something we do because we are creatures. Worship is not something we owe because we are fallen. It is something we owe because we are creatures. Adam and Eve, if they had never fallen, would have still been obligated to worship their creator. We were made to worship. This is why in heaven, even after we've been redeemed and we are no longer fallen and we are washed in the blood of the lamb, we will still worship because worshiping is what creatures do. And we know this in part because even the perfect man, Jesus Christ, lived a life of worship. We learn this in the incarnation of our Lord. He lived as a worshiper. And this means that our whole life is meant to be a life of worship and submission and glorifying our father in heaven as well. Jesus sets that pattern and we are meant to follow that pattern. And then third today, I want us to see that the incarnation teaches us that mankind is made for glory. Mankind is made for glory. You know, we remember in this season, the birth of Jesus. But the incarnation is not just about Jesus's birthday, right? That would be like talking about someone's marriage and focusing on the wedding day. And thinking, well, all we need to talk about is the wedding day, right? The incarnation is bigger than the birthday. It is his whole life. And I wanna do something very un here. And I've already done un things, but I wanna talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm not particularly in the mood to wait until April or late March to talk about that, if you'll indulge me. We need to see that the incarnation isn't just about Jesus' birth. The incarnation teaches us about our eventual destiny as God's children because we were made not just to bear God's image. We were made not just for worship. The incarnation also teaches us we were made for something else. We were made for glory. You know, all of us know bodily weakness and fallenness one way or another Uh, i realized this because my siblings and i got together and um, i am in my 40s and they are on the cusp of their 40s and we are already at the stage where when we get together we just talk about all the stuff that's wrong with us and, and I'll bet you, I will bet you in the last week, you just sat around with some other people who were about your age and you probably talked about all the stuff that's going wrong with your bodies, right? This is what we do now. This is our conversation. Um, we all have bodily weakness. We all experience fallenness in our lives. And maybe it comes in the form of actual sickness, maybe in the form of seasonal depression, the sort of stuff that don't make, doesn't make it into our house of prayer, Right, Pray for me because I'm depressed. Right, That doesn't make it into the house of prayer. Maybe, maybe you suffer from family strife. That doesn't make it into the house of prayer either, does it? And the holidays, what do they do? They just exacerbate those problems. Or maybe you just get exhausted and you wonder, how long? Lord, how long? You relate to the psalmist, right? You're weary. And you wonder, when is your rest going to come? The incarnation of the Son of God speaks to this. And here's what it says. We won't always be this way. We won't always be sad. We won't always be tired. We won't always be beset by troubles. That is not our permanent condition. And Jesus offers us hope in the here and now. He doesn't just offer it in the distant future when we die and are one day raised up. But the incarnation does preach a type of sermon to us. And it's a sermon that says God will make all of this right, not just in general with the world, but specifically he will make things right with us as his children. Jesus teaches us this to us in his incarnation. How do we know? Because after his crucifixion. Jesus is raised up and he ascends into heaven and he sits even now glorified at the father's right hand. Jesus is exalted and lifted up and restored and now he has a perfect body. And for the writers of scripture, this is not just a happy ending. This is very important. How do we know this? Two places at least where the writers draw something important between us and And the glorification of Jesus. The first one I want to point out to you is in Romans 8.11. In in Romans 8.11, Jesus moves from the incarnate Jesus to us. He moves from Jesus to us. Look how he does this. Just listen to the verse. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So look what Paul does. Paul draws a straight line from the glorified and ascended Jesus, and he draws it straight to us. And and Paul's Paul's saying this. He's saying, if you trust in Christ, then your dead body is going to rise up like his did. That's hope. That's glory. You see the complete picture in in Philippians 3.20. In Philippians 3.20, Paul says this. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I want you to notice those key words. He will transform our lowly body. And I would describe mine as a lowly body. And. If you feel the same way, then you should recognize you have a lowly body. I think all of us do. He will transform our lowly body to be like what? His glorious body, right? He doesn't just say, we'll get a, we'll get a body too that has the flaws removed. He applies the word glorious as a descriptor of the body we will be raised up with. See, the incarnation is the preview and the promise that we were made for glory. It's the preview and the promise. That we were made for glory. Paul sees it in Romans. He sees it in Philippians. And he draws the line from Jesus to us. And it's a straight line. It's not convoluted. He doesn't have to run through a chain of, of arguments. He just says it. We get the same glorious body that he gets. Right? This happened to Jesus. And if you trust in him. It's happening for you too. That's that's the line. You are united to Christ, you get what He's got. The incarnate Son of God was raised up, you'll be raised up, right? The incarnate Son of God has a glorious body, you will get a glorious body. You will be transformed. And you don't have to wonder what it will be like. It's fun to wonder what it will be like, but you don't have to wonder what it'll be like because He walked this earth. And he was raised up and he was glorified, and one day you will be too with a body like his. All of us as human beings were made for glory. How do we know? Because he was made for glory. Now, I mentioned this when we first started, but I want to come back around to it again. There are people who need to be corrected by the incarnation. Unchurched people, secular people, those who don't have a conscious submission to God, in general, thankfully, still have an understanding that there is something about human beings that is special or important. I don't know how long we can live off of the fumes of Christianity and Western culture, though. How long will it be until people actually are just straight up denying it? It's sad to say it's already happening. But we still have hope. We still have hope that people can hear these truths and still believe in it. We benefit from people's belief in human rights even if they can't explain them. People still have this sense that human beings are special and have rights. They just can't explain it. right? They're, sen- sen- they're, they're sentimental. They're romantic. Um, but it doesn't fit with what they think about the world if they really think about it. right? They just, they just intuit that human beings are important. And they might think that we're cosmic accidents, but also that we're worth saving. And I think a lot of people do. I would argue this. If you, if you jettison a sound reading of the laws of nature, if you ignore the teachings of Scripture, you might still believe in the importance of people, but you will not be able to consistently account for it. You can assert that human beings are important, but you can't explain why. And so apart from God's creative act, apart from the incarnation, you may just sense that people are special. Uh, You may just sense that people are important, but you also couldn't do anything more than just assert it, right? Elon Musk needs God. He asserts the importance of human beings. He just can't say why they're important. God is the missing piece. The creator is the missing piece. We are more than just perceivers. There's more to us than just perception. We are more than just machines made of meat. There is more to human beings than just looking and thinking and reacting. There is more to us than simply having emotions. Animals and computers show those same displays as well. If you have a dog, you know this is true. They get excited every time you walk through the door. At least my dog does. Um... They can think, they can reason, right? They, they get depressed even. Uh, they learn when mealtime is. Um, they know how to listen and obey. Not my dog, but your dog's probably. Um, they can remember uh, things. What's the difference? What makes mankind different? Well, the difference that we've seen already is found in the reality of the image of God and the fact that God chose to become one of us. He chose to become a human. He chose to walk this earth as a man. Of all the creatures on this earth, of all the conscious, conscious beings on this planet, he did not become an ape or a dog or a computer. He became a man. He lived among us as a man. He walked among us as a man. He looked up at the same moon and the same sun that we do as a man. He worshiped as a man. He prayed and sang as a man, and he forever is both God and man in the person of Christ. The incarnation is not only an incredible miracle, along with the resurrection, it is the pinnacle of God's acts in this world, the very height of his power and wisdom. But the incarnation is God himself coming to us, setting his stamp permanently upon humans as his creation and saying, mine forever let's pray our lord and our god during this time as we set our focus on the incarnation of your son may we never forget your great love for mankind made in your image and in jesus christ one with you forever it's in his name that we pray amen